This is the Astro Primer for the second week of August 2018. Hey guys, welcome to the Astral Primer, and right now, at this second week of August, we are heading into the new moon week. We'll have the new moon showing up by this weekend, and so every night is fantastic for Milky Way photography. So right now in North America, Northern Latitudes, Europe, just expect that you can go out any night without the moon getting in the way, but the core will set. So you want to be out in the early times, the early hours of the evening, as soon as full darkness arrives, you're going to want to be ready because the Milky Way is high in the sky, vertical, and that core is going to set on the horizon at a certain time depending on your specific location. So it will set long before astro twilight, and so you're not going to be able to plan on being there early morning up until astro twilight. That core will set, so check your photo pills, check your planet, and make sure you know when it's going to be for you. So if you're down in the southern hemisphere, let's focus on Perth, Australia this week. Anytime, just as much as we can, you can have the Milky Way show and you can do Milky Way photography any night. But know that right away in your early evening when full darkness sets in your winter, you're going to have a high Milky Way core, way high in the sky. The best time is going to be towards its setting. If you want to do panorama or if you want to wait for it to be near a foreground subject, it's going to get lower on the horizon towards the morning. You have many, many hours compared to us here in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's going to set in Perth, Australia around 4 a.m. So every night, all this week, the core will set almost horizontal parallel with the horizon by 4 a.m. So plan up until then, like 9 o'clock until 4 a.m. You're going to have a window, an awesome window for Milky Way photography. Now, what's really exciting about August is the yearly Perseid meteor shower. That's what you should be focusing on. And in fact, the 11th, 12th, and 13th coming up will be the absolute best days for the Perseid meteor shower because the moon is entirely out of our way worldwide. It's going to be fantastic. There's 50 plus, sometimes up to 100 meteors that you can see in an hour, depending on how dark your location is. With the nights of 11th, 12th, 13th, what we're talking about is not all night. We're talking in the morning. That's the peak time from midnight to dawn. And then you're going to see before midnight, you have a chance to capture these very low-lying right across the earth called earth grazers. And earth grazers are slow-moving, very colorful and bright meteors. If you can't make the early morning hours that are the best hours, or if you have enough time to do both, get out there early enough so that you can see earth grazers if they happen. If they happen, they will be something you remember for the rest of your life because they're these slow moving burning ones that, oh wow, look at the color. Look at how much it burned. It feels like it's right next to you when these happen. And then from midnight to dawn, you're gonna see a lot more meteors, but they're gonna be the white streaks. And so benefits on both halves of the night, beginning from dusk until midnight, you got earth grazer opportunity from midnight until dawn, you have more meteor opportunities. You're going to see more meteors. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be 50 plus a minute, and it's going to be astonishing how many meteors you'll see. So get ready for the Perseid meteor shower. In fact, if you're excited about that, stay tuned to the rest of this podcast because we're going to talk about the Perseid meteor shower. That's the Astro Primer for the second week of August 2018. Do you ever find yourself shaking your fist at clouds? Do you secretly wish you could cause a county-wide power outage? Have you ever caught yourself yelling, stupid moon? Have you ever left your warm bed and stood outside in near freezing temperatures at 2 in the morning and loved it? 
Have you ever answered the question, why aren't you getting enough sleep? With It's a New Moon. If you have ever said, thought, or done any of these things, then this podcast is for you. I'm Aaron King, and welcome to the Astrophotog Podcast. It's episode seven of the Astrophotog Primer, Astrophotog Primer, Astrophotog Podcast. I just came back from coughing, and so you're not hearing those coughs. Hopefully, I will be able to edit all of them out, and I won't miss any and neglect any. But I have pneumonia. I don't really have pneumonia. Okay, the doctor said I have an early stage of pneumonia, which, eh, I don't know, that could be coughing. But my early stage of pneumonia is serious enough, and it's bugging me. I can't sleep at night, and so I am coughing like crazy. So apologize for my voice and for any weird edits when I have to come back and cut and splice out the coughing. I'm hoping that the waveform shows the cough nice and big, and I can quickly edit them out of the podcast. So this is your beginner's introduction to photographing the Perseid meteor shower. Now, this is going to include details that you can use for absolutely every other meteor shower. But I'm specifically saying Perseid because it's this week. Get out there. Enjoy seeing the meteor shower. But how? How are you going to see the meteor shower? What's the best ways to experience the meteor shower? And what's the best ways as a photographer to capture the Perseid meteor shower? Well, let's go through some of the beginner stuff. So coming to you from earthsky.org, I'm going to use their general rules for going out and seeing a meteor shower. This is a fantastic website, earthsky.org. Really love them out there. Deborah Bird, one of the authors, and I think even the main creator of earthsky.org, if not just main curator of it right now, she's awesome. She's helped us get one of our stories out there on earthsky.org, and they just have... If you love the night sky and you want to find out, oh man, the lunar blood moon's coming, uh, what could happen, what do I need to do, you will find an article on their site about it, specifically even conjunctions between planets and the moon and stars and the moon, planets and stars. They'll, they'll tell you everything that's happening in the night sky. It's fantastic, great place to go, and they talk about the earth as well. Cool science, love that blog. So let's go through these one by one. No special equipment, no knowledge of the constellations needed. You just need to get out there. First thing first, get out there to a dark, open sky. Now, open because you're going to see meteors happening all over the sky, not just in the radiant area, which we'll talk about later. So you're going to see meteors happening all around you. And so get a nice, big, open swath of land that you can see things. Don't go in the forest at a campsite and have tree gaps to look through to see the meteor shower. Get to a field, get to an open pr prairie, a meadow, a desert. Just get out in an open sky and as dark as absolutely possible. Make sure you have a dark sky. There are going to be so many meteors that you can't see because they're just so low, low contrast objects. I mean, they're low contrast lines in the dark sky that if you have too much light pollution, you won't make them out. And so if you can get away from as much as you possibly can, you're going to double probably the meteors that you're seeing, if not quadrillion drupal. I don't think that's a real thing. But darkest sky you can find, there's as many as you can possibly see. You're going to have a great meteor shower. And if you're bringing kids who are kind of on the fence on how interesting this is going to be, go out as far as you can. Oh, man, make them watch a movie, drive away from everything, get to that dark sky site. Give yourself at least an hour of observing time. 
Why? Why would we do that? We talk about the red light and the white light on our headlamps and why we're doing. Constantly, we're looking at our phones and we're messing up our eyes, our vision at night. It takes 20 minutes and can take even longer sometimes to adapt to the darkness of night. You ever fallen asleep underneath the stars? And you just can't believe how many, many stars there are, how amazing the place looks. It's because you stopped opening up something that turned on lights. You stopped looking at things that are going to mess up your night vision. Your eyes are adjusting. It's fantastic because you finally have gone to the point where your eyes adjusted for the darkness of night. The third point that EarthSky.org makes is that know that the meteors all come from a single point in the sky, the radiant. So if you trace the paths of the Perseid meteor showers backwards, you'd find that they all are coming from a point in the constellation of Perseus, which is why we call them the Perseid meteor showers. You don't have to worry about which stars are in the constellation of Perseus. Just enjoy knowing and observing that all of these lines are streaking away from a single point. It could happen all around you and at different angles, but if you drew that line back, like, oh, okay, all those angles are going back to the radiant of Perseus. Fourth, you gotta bring a reclining chair. Tilting your head back is fun for five minutes. Lay back, completely back. As a kid, we all remember laying on a trampoline and looking up at the stars on our sleepovers out in the trampoline. That was comfortable. Get yourself a chair that completely reclines. You have those zero-gravity chairs, those really cheap ones, too, that you can find that are great. They just tilt you all the way back, and you're laying there. Oh, it's almost like it's converted into a cot. It's so back and so flat. And EarthSky.org points out that it's nice to just have a wonderful warm drink with you. Sitting out there, if you enjoy coffee, tea, hot chocolate like I do, man, have a good thermos of it because you're going to sit back, enjoy. It'll get a little chillier as the night goes by, and it'll be fantastic having that warm stuff in your belly. And if you can prevent yourself from falling asleep, it's amazing. Lastly, all good things come to those who wait. Meteors, they're a part of nature. You can't predict, predict when and where they're going to show up and how many. We do know why they show up at this time. We do know which days they show up every year and why it's consistent. And that gets explained in Geek Time here later on. So just remember, be patient. Give yourself at least an hour to adjust your eyes so you can see lots of cool stuff and have your eyes adjusted in time. Find a nice, dark, open, clear sky. Don't block it with anything if you can avoid it. Keep the nice canopy of the atmosphere and sky above us completely clear of any obstruction. Know that all the meteors will come from a different point, from one single point in the sky. And I'll explain a little bit more about why that's important here later on. And bring a nice, warm drink and a reclining chair. So those are the general rules for Perseid watching. I mean, this is the stuff that you need to go and enjoy it. But if you're also like me and a photographer who wants to try and capture some sort of single image that's going to tell the whole story of the coolness of the Perseid meter shower, then stay tuned after this one break of the podcast. We'll come right back and we'll talk about my tips for how to do this photographically. If you're considering going out to the Faroe Islands next year, I want to try and encourage you to come with us now. It's not too late to join us on our Faroe Islands trip in September. We have a few slots left. We had a guy purchase a slot just today. So excited to have him join us too. The prices, even this late, are looking to be pretty, pretty nice. I only got my ticket last week. I know that last week the prices were really good and better than I thought. If you guys look on skyscanner.net, skyscanner.net has options for 
really good flights and it takes what Google Flights is finding and it sometimes gives about a 10 12 dollar discount on what Google Flights is even seeing plus I'm able to plan the entire trip I can do multi-city so I can go straight from here to Iceland over to Faroe Islands back to Iceland and back home I was finding that I was getting savings if I chose a one-way crazy deals to find out there think about it join us on the Faroe Islands you can find it on photogadventures.com forward slash adventures click on the Faroe Islands picture and you will see it and there's also a PayPal option so if you want to put it on PayPal credit hmm, and pay for it later I recommend it it's awesome it's gonna be a great trip don't wait until next year come with us now welcome back to the Astro Photog podcast guys this is the Photog Adventures Milky Way centric astrophotography centric podcast with just me, Aaron King, and it is a fantastic time to be talking about astrophotography because the Perseid meteor shower is coming. Last time I was at the Perseids, I brought a 24mm Rokinon, and I thought 24mm is really wide. I mean, it is. It is for landscape photography, and it's plenty, plenty wide. The problem was I only got about 11 meteors, and I saw 30, 40, and I thought I was going to end up with dozens of meteors in my shot, and it turned into a kind of a placid, boring 11 or so meteor shot. If you look at photogadventures.com and look for the podcast notes, you'll see the Astrophotog episode 7 notes. And the cover picture I chose is my Perseid meteor shower shot, which I am not proud of. It is not cool. It is not awesome. It... It didn't have half the awesome stuff that I really wanted in it. But I wanted to show how if you have a really tight, tight angle, like 24 millimeter, which is not that tight, you're going to limit yourself. So I recommend a nice, nice wide, wide angle, 15, 14 millimeter, something fantastic like that, maybe even fisheye. It's more beautiful the more meteors you have. That's what you're doing. You're coming on a meteor shower to have more meteors be visible. So don't miss out on as many meteors as you can. I would say go wide angle, large aperture. So that's your lens choice, but what else are you gonna do to make sure your photography is solid? Well, time-lapse. The reason why I say time-lapse is because you can get it started and just let it go. You really have nothing to worry about with a 30-second shutter, and I recommend it so that you can get as much in there during those 30 seconds as possible. Adjust your settings so that you're not going too bright at 30 seconds, and make sure that you have a 3-second minimum seconds in between on your time-lapse so that you go 30-second shutter, right to card quickly, 3 seconds later, boom, it's taking another 30-second shot. So you only have 3-second windows every 30 seconds, that you're going to miss out on a meteor. I completely recommend the 30 seconds so that you get as much possible and doing a time lapse. But with the first tip is practice your time lapse. Why do you want to practice your time lapse? Those of you longtime listeners of the Photog Adventures podcast know that in my 2016 Perseids, I completely flubbed it. Flubbed it. Just destroyed it by having a time-lapse intervalometer that I was familiar with, but you can easily make mistakes on. And because of the paddle that changes the settings from 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0.000001 for a one second, or 0, 0, 0, 0.000001 0, 0, 1 minute, or 0, 0.1000 0, 0, 0, 0 is one hour. Well, if you go on this paddle and you're changing it up and down, you can make the mistake of rolling from 00 to 99. And I rolled not only to 99, but I rolled it on the hour. And so the entire length of my battery capacity of three and a half hours, it ran a single image. What I thought was a time lapse that was happening is clicking off. I, I could have sworn it was doing that. I ended up having just a white image, completely white, three and a half hours exposure of, you know, 
everything. All light came in, probably by about five minutes. It was purely white anyway. And then it just kept capturing and recording to my sensor. It was a nightmare. I still am sad from that moment. And the next year, 2017, the Perseids were blocked by the moon. And so we didn't go out for that. And so 2018 is our chance to recreate a better scenario. Don't do the mistake that I did. Know your time-lapse intervalometer. Is it your camera? Is it a add-on with your camera? Like on my Canon 6D, you're using a Magic Lantern add-on. Or are you using an add-on for Sony that you bought? Or are you using an actual intervalometer that you plugged into your camera like I did where I messed up on the paddles and I set it for 99 hours of exposure time? So long before Friday, Saturday, Sunday, before you go out and capture the meteors, make sure that you know your time lapse really, really well and know that you can do it in the dark. So just practice it. Make sure you do that. Don't make the mistake that I did. Then battery grip, timer to replace, something. You gotta be ready to swap out your battery or bring more. If you're one of the fortunate people with a Sony that can plug in a power bank that can go all night long like Kurt Kites makes me jealous of every time and Drew Armstrong even showed me he had it too. Uh, yeah, those are awesome. Make sure you're using those and just capture as many hours as you can because why not? You're there. Get as many meteors as you like, and then you can pick and choose. Don't go desperate like I did, where I had 11 barely showing up in my frame. Six of those 11 were right up against the rock and almost parallel with the rock of the hoodoos of Bryce Canyon. And you can't even really make out the hoodoos of the Bryce Canyon because of something else I'm going to give you a tip on. Uh, blah, blah. Just get as many as you can and pick your most favorite beautiful ones from those many that come through there to get your cool shot. David Kingham's book has a really good piercing and meteor shower shot, and you can see how he has them all going back to the radiant. And it looks cool when you have some on the radiant below, some on the radiant above, and it just kind of looks like you're going into warp speed in Star Trek. It is a cool shot. So make sure that you get as many as you possibly can. So have a really long-lasting battery. Have a battery grip with double batteries in there. Or just had a timer set so you know, okay, i got to replace the battery. And check it regularly. It might last for two hours normally, but because you're doing the Perseids, I guarantee you it will last only an hour and a half. That one battery that was full that you put in there was lying to you, and it's actually going to last for 20 minutes. And you're going to find out in an hour and a half that it's been off for almost the entire hour and a half. So just be very attentive of your batteries. Don't let them die on you because that's another thing like my flub that you're going to be regretting for life when you talk about that trip. So then the other tip, tip number five, lots of memory. Now this is just saying go with a big memory card. Not too big that you're crazy and it's going to crash and have a problem. Double the memory cards if you have a camera that has the two slots. Make sure you have a backup for it. And just don't go there with only 400 pictures left when you could just completely wipe the card, clean it off, put it in there, make sure it's ready to go, brand spanking, well I wouldn't say brand spanking new, but just not a single image on there and use the most that you possibly can to get the shot. Let's talk about capturing your foreground and how you're gonna work with that with your image. We have a wide angle, large aperture, you have it on time lapse, your battery's gonna last as much as you really need it to and you're gonna go with lots of memory so that it can go and well, before we clone our images in Photoshop, let's talk about our foreground. I made the mistake of going with a setting that was making my foreground look decent. And I thought I could just stack those and make my foreground stand out. There was also one period of time where the moon was out and making my foreground really lit. And so I thought, oh man, okay, my, my foreground looks like it's daylight almost. As the moon sets, it's going to go from daylight to shadow. 
and then I'll have a nice view. Here's the problem that I had. The hoodoos that I was looking at, they were really interesting in daylight, but in the shadow they lost a lot of their character and definition, of course. You need a little bit of light, and a light that's going to make them complement their character and shape and texture, not the kind that's going behind them and puts them in the shadow. So my position was bad already. It looked cool from the area I was. I even slept on the peak of a hill that I could roll down if I'm not careful while I'm sleeping just so that I can keep my camera safe up there. That's how much I thought that foreground was brilliant. It was framing it on both sides. I mean, look at the picture. It's just meh. It's just meh. It's not a portfolio piece. You'll see it and be like, yeah, okay, I can tell that's rock, but that's all you really can. The shots with the moon out, oh my gads, they are so extremely bright and washed out on the edges that they get fuzzy. There's, there's loss of clarity. The exposure choices that I made for capturing the sky ended up making my moon images look terrible. You've got to have a different exposure for your foreground than you will your Perseids. That's just what I recommend. Just make sure you capture the foreground the best way possible. You could do it in the day. You can do it at blue hour. My recommendation is either light paint your foreground subject or capture a big subject that's at the blue hour. Now, don't worry about moonlight. Just have it be the fact that blue hours come. You can see all the terrain. They look kind of bluish color. And then get a nice, crisp, sharp shot of your foreground. Keep your tripod in place. Adjust for infinity for your, your focus on your stars. If you have to refocus at all, make sure that everything is working and capture your exposure based on your sky after that. And then you're just going to have to do the work to mask in the sky and the foreground. Do a composite. Now, this is technically a blend if it doesn't move the tripod based on the rules of law that we have decided with Royce Bear. Royce Bear's rules of law on if the tripod doesn't move, it's the same location. It's not a composite, even though it's a different hour of the day. It's a blend. And so you're blending the blue hour with the night sky, but you still will have to mask it in. Even though there's a perfect, harsh, sharp line. You, as you find out, you change any setting on your ISO, uh, on your aperture, or on your um, shutter speed, and you capture those rocks in just a different exposure, you can have a, a non-sharp, fuzzy edge where before you had a crisp, nice, defined edge. And so that edge that's nice and defined during the day and the edge that's fuzzy on the rock at the different exposure at night, you're going to find that when you line them up, and even though they haven't moved at all, you have this bleed out of the fuzzy side of the rock into your sky, where it's like crisp rock, fuzzy rock sky, and you've got a halo of dark color all around your foreground, and it's annoying. And so you can work with that. Um, recently, Stephen Magner pointed out on our Facebook listeners group that there's a really good tutorial that Nick Page has done, and he's fantastic at these kind of things. So go to see his tutorial on YouTube for dealing with halos in your image. And halos around your foreground. You can use that same technique to get rid of that kind of foreground halo. There's also a technique that Eli Locardi does where he basically takes the image that is the sky and warps the edges and basically like he's tucking a blanket, he tucks it underneath the foreground rock. So the rock in the background that's a little bit fuzzy and blurry and 
outside of the crisp exposure rock. He just tucks it in. It ends up warping the black space, purpley space between the stars, but because many people don't have an understanding, and pretty much everyone doesn't have a clear, crisp understanding of the millimeters of the star's positioning all along the horizon and how they should be, if you end up pulling them a little bit away from their natural position that they were during that shot, and which isn't even natural because your lens distorted it anyway, the warping won't matter at all. No one's going to recognize that you've actually pulled it and tucked it underneath, and so you can get away with just tucking that layer underneath the crisp rock and let the crisp rock be what's perfectly overlapping your dark sky, and you'll be fine. So these techniques for your foreground are going to help you have a really sharp, interesting foreground. So the last tip, now with pneumonia head and complete air pressure in my head from all this uh, cold that I have, hopefully this hasn't been too all over the place. There's a lot of tips here, so hopefully it's been an easy to follow. So say now you've got your foreground shot, it looks good, you've tucked in a sky. Well, the sky, what's the sky? The sky is going to be 30, 10, 100 images all stuck together. Here's the way you could do it. You could use lighten and that would bring in your meteor, and then you would just have to paint out everything else, mask out everything else. If you're familiar with Photoshop, this will make sense. If you're not, this is gonna be really difficult by verbal alone, but you got a layer, and you put the stars on there with your meteor. The stars behind there that you're deciding to be your base set of stars, they're gonna be in a different position from all the stars on your layer with the meteor. They're just gonna be slightly moved or maybe hours later and completely moved. So what happens when you do a light and blend mode, you're gonna see all those stars plus your meteor. So then you apply a mask to your meteor layer. And so typically I would just let all white be my mask and cover over that layer of background stars. And then I paint in black everywhere around the meteor. And so you can do it that way. You can simply go and take a marquee tool and pencil, uh, lasso tool and just lasso around your meteor and then create a new layer with that and put that on there with that, the rest of your layer. You don't have to use a mask. You can just cut it out. You can literally cut it and then place it right where it's where it's been at. I wouldn't move your meteors around. Please don't. That's starting to become a composite when you move things from where they actually were. Don't make your Perseid meteor radiant look perfect. Perfectly done. Just completely like a every single meteor came right off of it. It's not going to be how it ends up. You're going to have different angles of meteors, but they all kind of point back to a radiant. And depending on the time of night, that radiant is moving along the sky. Getting into geek time. Moving along the sky, and so where that radiant angle points, imagine if you're holding a pencil in front of yourself and the radiance on your horizon, hold the pencil horizontal. And then as the Perseus constellation goes higher in the sky, tilt your pencil up. And you're going to see how every meteor you have is going to have a different angle, but still points back to the radiant. It's just they all happened at different hours of the night when the radiant rose higher in the sky. So don't move your meteors. Just basically cut them out from where they're at and then make sure that the rest of the layer of the other stars aren't visible and that overlaps Really easy. It's not that hard. Probably way confusing saying the options here on a podcast only. And with my head the way it is right now, I'm probably not in the best teaching uh, method of making this clear. So, so let's move on. So these are the tips. Just in summary, real quick, photographically, make sure that you get a wide-angle lens with a large aperture, 
do a time lapse, but practice doing a time lapse. Whether that time lapse method is your camera, magic lantern, or a intervalometer that you've attached to your camera body, make sure you practice using it and you understand it so that you don't, during the critical times, mess it up. Then the battery grip and timer to replace. Just You're going to replace your batteries or you're going to bring in lots of batteries and plug them in there. Battery grip batteries or you're going to go with a Sony and plug it in with a power bank. Any way you can, power that thing more than three hours. You're going to be going at least, if you get at least two hours, you're fine. You got it during the during the best time, you're going to get great shot during those two hours. But four hours are going to be everything. So if you want to capture everything during the peak from midnight until dawn, make sure your batteries can last at least four hours. Then you're going to have lots of memory on your card. You're going to take tons and tons of pictures. Every 30 seconds, you're taking a picture, dropping it three seconds, take another one, take another one, take another one. The time lapse is going. You're not going to have big, long gaps. You're going to want it constantly capturing, constantly showing not missing a single meteor as much as you possibly can. Then your foreground, capture it in the blue hour or bring something to light paint it. Make the light painting on the foreground quality. Blue hour light, get it defined, or just a quality light painting job during the time you're doing the time lapse because you're going to regret having what I had where you think you can just pull it out from stacking. It doesn't turn out very well, and it doesn't change much. It's just a noisy foreground and dark. You don't want that. You want character, texture on your rock, trees, lake, whatever it is you're doing as a foreground. Make sure that it has a very high-quality landscape shot taken. Then get your astrophotography shot of the Perseids. Okay, so now we're going to go into geek time and talk about this radiant I keep mentioning and the earth grazers that we mentioned in the Astro Primer. First off, you need to understand where do meteor showers come from? Why do we have a consistent understanding of when these meteor showers are going to happen? How come it's so consistent? We have to remember that our Earth is orbiting our sun and moving around in this elliptical orbit. On top of that, these comets that come through give us the dust that are our meteor showers. So when comets are orbiting the sun, they're giving off particles of dust and rock and ice and all these things that are being left you know as they're bursting through here it's not just a clean trail I mean obviously the comet trail that you're seeing as it goes around the sun is because of these dust particles that are in their wake and so every year we run into this trail of dust and the earth literally like a windshield to bugs is driving through these dust particles and as it dries through the dust particles, meteors pick up. You start seeing more and more and more. With these meteors, they happen from a specific angle because of where that orbit is taking place. Swift-Tuttle is the source of the annual Perseid meteor shower. The last time this comet Swift-Tuttle was observed by us was in 1992, as we passed between late November and early December. So looking at an article in space.com talking about the comet Swift-Tuttle is the icy parent of the Perseid meteor shower, go to space.com, my other favorite blog about space. And it talks about how this is a 16-mile-wide solar system object that's been passing close to Earth repeatedly. This comet was actually originally thought to be likely to hit the Earth in 2126. But the last time it passed Earth in 1992, astronomers were able to take different measurements and precise measurements and calculate the next pass won't be so dangerous after all. So it won't end the Earth in 2026 like it was once originally thought. This giant comet of 16 miles that comes by, all of its dust and debris create the Perseid meteor shower as they burn up in the Earth 
this atmosphere because they're traveling quickly too. They're traveling around 37 miles per second as they go through in this orbit as they're continuing as they follow behind the comet itself. So even though the comet only passes around the Earth every 133 years, the meteor shower occurs every year when we move through the trail of its orbit. Very nerdy to talk about how this happens every year consistently because the dust is there still, and every 133 years this comet's coming through here and rebuilding that dust. So, you guys... Get your cameras ready, get your eyes ready, get your reclining chair and your warm drinks, your warm hot cocoa ready because this weekend you're not getting sleep. You're going out at least one of those nights and you're going to stare up at the night sky. You're going to see an earth grazer before midnight. You're going to stay past midnight and see 50 to 100 meteors an hour. It's going to be amazing and you're going to capture it all on your camera with your big wide angle large aperture lens and you're going to have it on time lapse so that you don't have to worry about it. I mentioned it earlier or hinted at it that I like this method the most because once I got the time lapse working, I don't touch it. And so now I just get a kickback with the hot chocolate and enjoy it with my eyes and I get the best of both worlds. No stress with my camera, no constantly changing things, just got a couple batteries in there on a battery grip or I plug it into a goal zero and run it from there and I just let it run and enjoy and just try and capture that earth grazer and try and capture those really, really cool meteors all throughout the night. Really nice radiant shot. Without the moon being in our way, this is going to be one of those amazing years. Don't lose that opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Photog Adventures podcast, everybody. Thank you for being patrons. We really appreciate you guys. If you guys have not received your stickers yet, check in with me. I did a sticker roll call. I got everyone's addresses out. As soon as this pneumonia, this pneumonia is no longer killing me, I'll get some sleep and get the last bit of the stickers out, and I'm going to enjoy seeing all of your pictures of where you guys put your stickers to see this represent photog adventures and remember photog adventures is not about brendan and i or even james kelly kurt kais rob ryan daniel lindhart jeff peterson it is not about those guys or our admins josh moore dean vincent daryl harrington brent huntley it is not about all of these guys guess what photog adventures is about it's about encouraging and inspiring you guys to get out there and have a photog adventure of your own. Go have an adventure. Don't think about all the logistics that make it complicated. Just make sure you enjoy this weekend. Enjoy an adventure. Have a great one, guys. We'll talk to you again this Wednesday. <laughs>